You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. It is good to be back here. For those of you uh, who I have not yet met, my name is is Trent. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Can we... (laughs) Let's pause for some technical difficulties. There's no clip. Yeah, I'm hoping that one's got a clip. Can I switch out with somebody? Pretty please. Paul, thanks for your help. Since I'm handicapped today, for those of you who are wondering what's with the boot, I was here last time on a pirate leg. How many of you remember the pirate leg? Uh, anyway, I, I had a left ankle replacement. It's been a two-surgery process. And when, thank you, thank you. And when that, uh, the day before my first surgery, I stopped shaving for the first time. Just to put in perspective how long it's been in a process. And so I'm going through physical therapy as we speak. And I'm doing so much better. Uh, but I didn't know they replaced, replaced left ankles. And so one other question before we jump into some fun material this weekend. Um, how many of you think Ryan Rice tried to actually walk on water when he was at the Sea of Galilee? <laughs> My gut says he tried. It's kind of cool. My two sons are actually with him over there right now. And their first time experience as well with the Holy Lands. And so uh, I've actually spoke a little bit to Ryan this morning. He just got done floating in the Dead Sea, if you've ever had that experience. And I'm pretty confident Ryan's going to come back and start the process of organizing a trip for North Valley. And so start saving your money. You will never read the Bible the same once you've stood on the ground that you're reading about, right? And so anyway, uh, just for my own nerves, as I like to do, and it's good to be back here. It's starting to feel like home here to me. I wish I lived a little closer. It's about a 40-minute drive, but that's not too bad. And so I hope to come back as often as you all would have me. So just for some nerve's sake, would you pray with me and help me relax? And we've got to dedicate this time to God. Lord, thank you for how good you are. Thank you. I know, God, that you are meeting man-to-man with Ryan over on the other side of the world right now, helping him walk through and see everything that happened to Jesus and where it happened God, I pray that you'd bring him back even better and that when he preaches and teaches, it'll, it'll, it'll be different because he's been there. And I just pray for this church. I'm so thankful for what you did over the Easter weekend here and how many people you gathered from around the neighborhoods. And, and God, I just pray a blessing for this church. I'm so grateful for North Valley and how they impact uh, one person at a time for you. And I just pray that you would continue to help us Uh, be those kind of people that we'd be faithful. And so, Lord, may everything I speak, may everything that we learn in our short time we have together, may it be honoring to you. And and God, as I like to always ask, challenge, may each and every one of us, as we walk out of here in a few minutes, be better than we were than we arrived. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So today, it was kind of funny, Ryan called me. He was not positive he was going to get to go on this trip due to some passport stuff and you know how bureaucrats and loopholes and whatever, something goes wrong when we're dealing with the government on occasion. Anyway, he called and he's like, Trent, I think I'm going to need you on this weekend coming up. And he said, could you possibly do a message where we don't worry about the screen, we don't worry about the bells and whistles, just step up and do what you do. And I'm like, oh, dream come true. So we're not going to worry about this thing behind me. And I just want to encourage you to tune in. And, and here's my challenge, and i got to jump into this material immediately. Um, one of my favorite teachings and messages. I've been over to the Holy Lands, led groups. My wife and I were trying to count last night. We can't remember, six, seven times. And one of the trips... 
was early, and I had dedicated, this is when uh, Paul had mentioned I was a pastor at Parkway Christian out in Surprise, which is now the CCV Surprise campus out there. Um, I took a trip. I spent 10 years diving deep into Hebrew culture. I think a lot of us will spend time in Christianity learning Greek, you know, which is the original language of the New Testament. And I think we make a mistake sometimes just studying Greek words because even though they used Greek language, they never separated themselves from the Hebrew, Hebrew culture. Culture often gives more clarity than language and words and definition. And so I went over to the Holy Lands one time with the full intent to, I had been studying every time I went through the scripture and something got very specific, as you'll notice in a minute, I, I wrote it down. And I said, I'm going to get over the Holy Lands and I'm going to find some of the oldest Jewish people I can find, old, older women and older men, and ask them questions, uh, whether they were a Christian or not, whether they were Jewish or whatever. And I just, do you happen to know the Hebrew culture and what this might have meant? And I'm going to spend some time teaching on something that Christians in the Western culture in America totally, I think, misunderstand. And it's very fitting with the message material and the, and the series that we're going through, Distressed. How do you and I stand strong in, in a society that basically is beginning? We're coming back to the Acts 2 type church mentality where the church is starting to face some persecution. It's exciting. Every time the church gets persecuted, it explodes in its evangelism and people who give their lives to Christ. But it often can be very dangerous, sometimes deadly. Maybe not here in Western culture, but who knows what the future holds for all of us. So I want to preface something that Jesus said. Two things. He said, conquer evil. If you just pause right there, I mean, he'd be like, what do you mean conquer evil? What does that require of us as followers of Jesus? Conquer evil by doing good. Conquer evil by doing good. He said another one. He said, be as sly as a snake. Some translations will use the word shrewd, same thing. Be as sly as a snake. If we just pause there, it'd be like, this will be fun. Anybody know the trivia, what the next sentence says? Be as sly as a snake, but innocent as a dove. And you're like, okay, what does this mean? And so I'm going to take us through three things that Jesus taught. In fact, let's, let's jump into them real quick. Uh, it's, it's in the book of Matthew. And Jesus is talking about revenge. You're going to hear and be familiar with these phrases. Jesus said, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, so he's coming in and overruling the old law. But I say, do not resist an evil person. Someone slaps you on the right cheek. And I caught that and wrote it down. It's like, why do you say right cheek? Why wouldn't he just say if somebody slaps you on the cheek? Well, there's meaning to it. And I discovered that talking to some old wise people in, in Jerusalem. And I say, do not resist an evil person. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. And if you were sued in court for your shirt uh, and it's taken from you, Give your coat too. And if a soldier, and I'm like, why did he say soldier? And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. I think the mistranslation of that passage in Western culture has created what I call, give me some grace here, please, the wussification of the church. Just take another beating. 
Somebody slaps you, take another one. If somebody sues you at court, give them everything you got. Go the extra mile. Where do those phrases come from? Right out of the passage. But what did Jesus literally mean? So let's jump into it immediately. Uh, Somebody consider, you know what? I'm going to just have Paul, maybe not yet. Uh, Oh, come on. Don't you freeze on me. There it goes. Let's get into turn the other cheek. What did he mean? Now, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge with this message. I have yet, in the many times that I've shared this message, I always have a hard time of getting you to, <laughs> getting you to, thank you for the warning, getting, you to, getting us to practically understand and apply it to our personal lives. So what I think you're going to learn as you walk out of here is that what I'm asking of you is when you walk out of here in a few moments, you will be internally stronger than you were when you came in here. You'll begin to chip away, if you are guilty at all, of being a part of the wussification of the church, which means just being a nice guy, taking another beating, letting people abuse you. Jesus never allowed that. In fact, in the times where where the religious leaders got after him, he used what I think and would argue within you very clear, uh, like cuss words, they would be considered by the religious people. You whitewashed tombs, he said. You sons of vipers. We have a phrase like that, right? To call the Jewish religious leaders a son of a viper? In their culture, what did the snake do? Brought the fall, the great fall upon all humanity, right? And to call them sons of the snake? That's an absolute curse word to them. And they killed him for it. They had no problem shouting, crucify him. Get rid of the schmuck, is what they were saying. He's been challenging our power ever since he stepped on this soil. We're ready to get rid of him so we can have everybody be our sheep again. And that's what happened in that city. So let's talk about Jesus says, so so you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Paul, I need you as a volunteer pair. I promise not to hit you. I am disabled, so you could whoop me if we tried to fight, but not if I was whole. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So our translations say if somebody slaps you on the right cheek. But when you get into the original language, and this is some value of understanding Greek, the Greek word actually translates smites you. Jesus literally says, if somebody smites you on the right cheek, turn to them the left cheek. So be patient with me while you stand up here. It's it's all good. You make me look better too. And I love your hairstyle as well. Uh, Everything we know and do in a Western culture, any culture, has origins. It comes from somewhere. So Follow my thought. I'm going to be all over the place here, which is kind of how I normally preach. Boxing. When we ask in a Western culture for two people to box, we don't have featherweights match up with heavyweights, right? We have heavyweights take on heavyweights, featherweights take on featherweights, and so and so. Close fists, they duke it out, admitting we're equals, and we're just going to fight out to the end until somebody scores us or one of us gets knocked out. But we're actually equals. Closed fist fighting has origins into the Hebrew culture. If somebody in a Hebrew culture slugs you, if you get angry with a closed fist, the slugger is actually saying, I'm angry at you, but I still consider you my equal. 
A closed fist has so much meaning. The English language has harmed us. It's very difficult there, there, and there. Have you ever tried to teach somebody to speak English? You know, it's crazy. Our letters mean individual things. In a Hebrew culture, their letters are images like hieroglyphics. And every letter, it's kind of like the Chinese language in that sense. Every letter is like art. And it actually is a picture and has multiple layers to it. A closed fist in Hebrew culture means I'm going to punch you, but I am admitting you're my equal and I'm just letting you have a little bit of my anger. Same thing with an open-handed slap. If he's messing with me and I'm upset and he's my friend or not friend and I slap him, I am actually admitting he's still my equal. But there is a strike called a smite that actually if I do to my opponent, to my enemy, even to my friend here, Paul, a smite actually says, I think I'm better than you. I'm looking down my nose at you. And it's where we get the idea of of turning the back of the hand. Some people would use a glove. You've seen that in movies where they just smite somebody. A smite in the Hebrew culture is for me to take my right hand, and I'll talk about that in a minute, come across my body and smite. This is his right cheek. Jesus says, if somebody smites you on the right cheek, turn to them the left also. You don't, hold on, hold on. So just follow this this train of thought a little bit, this smiting, this, if somebody, somebody smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. Here's what that means. And it deals with the right hand and the left hand. Here's another Hebrew culture thing. This is a strange message, but it, it will bring some things alive in scripture to you. Jewish people, especially in Jesus' time and still today, do not touch others with their left hand. Law followers today, they just do it out of law and tradition. But back in Jesus' day, you didn't. If I walked up to my Jewish friend and put my left hand on his shoulder, do you know what else I did with my left hand? I went to the bathroom and used it to wipe. Let's just say it like it is. This in a Jewish culture is the unclean hand. So anytime I use this, I'm not cursing him. I mean, I'm, I'm defiling him. I'm making him unclean, but I'm embarrassing and humiliating myself. Now switch to the right hand. There's more than 60 verses throughout the Bible that talk about God's strong right hand. Greet one another with the right hand of fellowship. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God demonstrates his power, his judgment, his honor, his glory. So, Jesus says, if somebody smites you on the right cheek and I've hurt him, a follower of Christ conquers evil by doing a good thing. The bad thing would be for him to smite me back, to punch back, seek revenge, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You following me? So how does he put me in my place, conquer evil by doing good? He turns to me his left cheek, which forces me in my anger to kind of, I can't smite him with my right hand. I look like an idiot. And in my spontaneity and my anger, he puts me in a spot where I might slap him. Or forget it, I might punch him, which says what? I now am his equal. You following me? Conquer evil by doing good. Be as sly as a snake and as innocent as a dove. In this distressed country that we live in, figure out how to outwit, outsmart, outplay anybody else like Survivor? Absolutely. 
outwit, outsmart, outplay, and still remain holy and innocent so that when somebody does persecute, when somebody does try to attack, and you handle it, conquering them, their evil, by doing good, they will walk away going, I ain't ever messing with that Christian again. They put me in my place. Or the Bible passage that Jesus says, treat your enemy with such kindness that it heaps burning coals on their head. He never just says, hey, just take another beating, followers. He says, stand strong. He's on the cross being spit at. And he has the strength to say, Father, out loud, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldier down here is like, oh my God, surely he is the son of God. Because he was bold in the middle of being attacked. Give this man a round of applause. He got step one done. Turn the other cheek, right? Are you following me? So on that one, true or false? True or false? Jesus meant when someone hits you, lay down and get kicked too. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. Romans 12, 19 through 21. If you write this or watch this later, is where it starts talking about conquering evil by doing good. And so let's go to the next one. The next sentence Jesus says is, is that if somebody takes you to court and they sue you, take away your shirt, let them have your coat as well. I'm going to turn, uh, I heard that uh, North Valley uses the ESV version of the Bible. Uh, I didn't bring that version, so I'm going to read it out of my phone. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 9. I swear I'm faster with paper. It's weird. Verse 20. Does that just mean I'm getting old? Some people say, yeah, your gray beard makes you look old. I'm like, that's not gray. That's chrome. <laughs> what I say? Genesis chapter 9. Chapter 9, starting with verse 20. I did that wrong. Come on, shaky. 9, starting with verse 20. Listen to this passage. If someone takes you to court and sues you for your shirt, let them have your coat as well. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard back in Genesis. He drank of the wine. This is when, after he'd been on the boat, who wouldn't want a drink of wine after you've been on a boat for more than a year? You know, a lot of us point fingers and go, Noah, you're an idiot. You were just on the boat. All the world's population is wiped out with the great flood. You come down, plant a vineyard and go against God and you get drunk. You're like... I think we should have a little more compassion. I cannot imagine what he experienced shut away from the world on the, the great ark while everybody else around him was annihilated. So he, he builds this vineyard and he drank of the wine and he became drunk. Critical sentence. And he lay uncovered in his tent. Uncovered is a synonym for naked. He's laying naked in his tent. Ham, one of his sons, the father of Canaan, saw Noah's nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers." And Ham is the cursed of the three. Now, I wish I could tell you that there's a specific Bible verse in the New Testament that Jesus used to teach what I'm going to teach regarding if somebody takes you to court, 
sues you for your coat or your shirt, give him the other garment as well. But there's not. But Jesus, as you'll see in the next one, Jesus uses Roman culture. In this one, he's still using Hebrew culture to teach the listener what he's meaning about conquering evil by doing good. And in the Hebrew culture, they go back and they read this Old Testament passage and they say to themselves, God must believe that it is a curse for us to see somebody naked. And they believe that, except for the most intimate in their relationships, like spouse. And even, even, even some of the Hasidic Jewish people, they still take it very seriously. They don't see their a husband doesn't see his wife naked that they believe that sex was created by God just for procreation. And so tradition of that, which is a misunderstood tradition, they bring it into the culture, and on the night that the husband and wife want to try to procreate, they actually have a sheet between them with a hole. That's the Hasidic Jew tradition. Same tradition as this. There's an Old Testament passage that says, do not cook a, 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 a kid. It doesn't mean child. It means baby goat. Do not cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's a relational heresy. No, no child of any species should be cooked in its mother's milk. But the Jewish people take that tradition to say, you cannot have meat and cheese together, meat and dairy. So literally, Ryan might be trying to order a pepperoni pizza in Jerusalem. There's no such thing. You can order a pepperoni pizza with no cheese, or you can order, order a cheese pizza with no meat on it because they take the tradition of the Old Testament law and they take it literal. They did this one with this as well. So somebody takes you to court and you get sued. You're taken to court as a follower of Christ according to Jesus' teaching if you're in the Hebrew culture and they sue you for your shirt. Well, pause for a second. What clothing did they wear back in the Hebrew culture? They had two garments other than their sandals. You had two garments. You had your shirt that went sometimes all the way to the ankle. Jesus was one piece, and they, they gambled for it at the foot of the cross. And outside of this one garment, this is their pajamas. This is considered their shirt. It's considered their evening underwear, if you will. They wore nothing under it. And then they had a cloak that had the hood. Some would wear a prayer shawl with it. That went. So if somebody takes you to court and sues you for your shirt, give them your coat also leaving you what? Naked. Doing now your sewer, your, your sewer, the person who sues you, sees you naked and does what to them according to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and Noah? Curses the person who sues you. And there's a fun passage that goes deeper than this. It's in Deuteronomy. It was in Genesis. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Listen to this which they would have taken literal as well. Verses 10. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, and you can add, and they add to it, if somebody sues you and takes your shirt, you shall not go into the house to collect the pledge. You should stand outside. The man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. Some translations actually will start talking about if, he, if somebody takes you and loans the coat, their cloak, you shall restore to him the pledge before the sun sets, or you yourself will be cursed. The Jewish people would have known this when Jesus is teaching. Somebody takes you to court and sues you for your shirt, give him your coat as well, because they got to give it back to you before sunset anyway, and they're going to see you naked and be cursed, and you have done nothing wrong. You have conquered evil 
by doing good. Does that make sense? It's fascinating. All of a sudden, turn the other cheek. All of a sudden, uh, uh, be ensued how you handled that. Outwit, outsmart, outplay, but in an absolutely holy way. There's a third one. He goes on. Well, let me get the true and false on that. True and false. Jesus meant when someone attacks you and steals your wallet, give them your car keys too. No. Figure out how to outwit, outsmart. And then he says in the next sentence, and if a soldier forces you to go one mile, carry his pack too. And I wrote that down. I'm like, why is he talking about soldiers' packs? And this one took some major research on my part. It started with the Jewish culture. Jesus actually is using Roman culture and Roman law to speak to the Jewish population where he's teaching this message. They were occupied by the Roman Empire. The people Jesus is teaching fully understood the Roman laws and had to tread carefully every day or they could be crucified. They could be made fun of. They could be beaten, whatever it was. And so he says, if a soldier... So in the Roman Empire, there's this law called the Law of Engaria. The Law of Engaria, is a, it is a major read. It took me a lot of time that, that talks about uh, details of how to deliver mail in the Roman Empire. And then there's this obscure section that talks about the Roman Empire never wanting to occupy the enemy's land as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, they wanted to be strong. They wanted to conquer you. I can't think of the word. But they did not want to be considered barbarians, brutal, treat you and abuse you unless you really cross the line. Then they'd crucify you. Uncivilized is the word I was looking for. They actually use that word. The Roman Empire is not an uncivilized empire. We are able to conquer, but we want to remain and seem respectful and civilized. And so this mentality, they actually said this. Because we're civilized, if you are a Roman soldier, you can ask anybody, you can force anybody who's not Roman to carry anything you want for one mile. We translate it one mile, but it's close to one mile. Pause. Jesus is carrying his cross. He's walking the Via Della Rosa. He falls. The Roman soldiers point to Simon of Cyrene and say, you carry his cross. He did it, right? The law of Angaria is being enacted. Here's what's amazing. There's two spots. Ryan's seeing this firsthand as we speak. There's two spots where the crucifixion could have happened. Both had Golgotha faces, skull hills. We don't know for sure which one, unless you ask me, I'll tell you exactly which one is right, because I'm right, right? Just kidding. <laughs> Here's what's amazing. Whichever location the sites are, from where he would have been whipped and began to carry his cross, how far do you think it is to each location? One mile. You carry his cross. So a Roman soldier could force you to carry anything he wanted you to carry for one mile. Jesus says, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry anything for a mile, hey guys, carry it too. The law of Angaria continues. If the servant or the slave or the person you forced to carry the pack for one mile carries it one step beyond that mile, you now must become subservient to the carrier. 
for we are not an uncivilized society. If you allow that person to carry it beyond the mile, you can be demoted. Depending on your rake in the Roman Empire, you could face death because you embarrass the Roman Empire. Jesus says if somebody asks you to carry, if a soldier asks you to carry a pack for a mile, hey, honorary ones, innocent ones, holy ones, carry it two miles. He didn't say it, but I'd like to add, and that Roman soldier will never ask you again to carry his pack. That person that took you to court will never again cross you. The person that slapped you, that smited you on the right cheek, will never do it again because you put them in, the pla- in their place and the entire time you were a person of holiness. It's a little bit of a different concept of just take another beating, give everything that you have, and serve people till you got nothing left. Those are all good things. But Jesus never said, allow yourself to be fully taken advantage of. And some people say, but yeah, they took advantage of my, on the cross. No. Jesus said, I lay down my own life so that I may take it up again. Nobody takes my life from me. There's no greater love than this than one who lays down his life for a friend. And I lay down my life for you. They didn't kill me. They may have tortured me, but who's going to get the last hurrah? Because of what I did faithfully to the Father, I have been given all authority on the earth, under the earth, in the heavens. Someday I will return and I get to do the final call. I'm tempted to say the final laugh, but he won't laugh. It's terrible judgment day. It's terrible. I don't want anybody to spend eternity separated from their God, especially in a location that was never made for mankind. It was made for Satan and his followers, Satan and the angels who followed him. The Bible's clear on that. The hell was not designed for humanity. We were headed there ourselves. God never sends you to hell. He just honors your choice to honor him or not, to submit to his lordship or not. Every single one of us were headed to hell. God came in and intervened and threw out a bridge and says, I love you all. You all are my masterpiece. I want to be in a friendship and a relationship with you. My son is going to lay down his life for you. We want you back. Don't continue the trajectory of eternity, eternity separated from me, right? And it's fascinating when you read these passages and you see the strength that Jesus taught with. And so to wrap this up and kind of pull it all together in the last few minutes I have, as you face an attacker, and some people think attacker is different. Some in here, you've got to toughen way up when somebody uses a word and it hurts your feelings. Come on. Come on. God did not make you fragile. Who in the world told you that you are fragile? I'd go so far to say, who in the world told you this earth is fragile? Go swim out in the middle of the ocean for two minutes and see how gigantuan this planet is. It's not fragile and you're not fragile. And so as you face fragility, as you face the temptation to want to retreat, as you face the prospect of being abused, prosecuted, prosecuted, maybe prosecuted, persecuted as well, or whatever 
as a follower of Jesus. God has given you a brain and a heart to figure out the internal strength to be able to square up with your attacker, whatever that means to you, and somehow outwit, outsmart, outplay, conquer their evil by doing absolutely everything innocent. I don't know who, who ever started saying and believing that Christianity is a crutch for the weak, that it's just a man-made religion for the weak. If, if I'm going to create a man-made religion, it's going to state I'm going to be God, I get to do whatever I want, I do not have to sacrifice anything, I'm never going to put down the phrase, pick up your cross and follow me. I'm going to say, Trent is king, you do what he says, or you die, Trent gets to say what he wants to say, do what he wants to do, and if you disagree, you're out. That would be a man-made religion. But Jesus says, no, pick up your cross and follow me. Every single one of us are going to have a pain, hurt feelings, or something that we hate that Jesus is going to say back to us, I'm not healing that one. I will someday, but not while you're on this earth. You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. I picked up the cross and followed you and followed my father. I'm asking you to follow me. What is your pain that you're going to have to carry? And as you face an attacker, a persecution, whatever it is, I personally am learning in those circumstances and situations. I just got a call last night, 1 p.m., somebody leaving a message. I'm convinced the guy is satanic. I know him. He's threatening me. He's saying, I want to square up with you. I've got some things to correct with you. Back when you were at the church that, that you were leading and I was there, you said things that I disagree with. Well, I don't say things on stage that go against the Bible. And so already, just last night, I'm trying to figure out tomorrow, I'm going to put in a phone call. What's funny, he didn't call me. He called my son, who's now delivered the message to me. So every day, we as followers of Christ, if you're standing for the Lord and representing the truth and drawing a line in the sand, there are going to be people who dislike you greatly and may seek revenge on you. What are you going to do? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Or are you going to learn as Jesus teaches? Turn the other cheek. Carry it for two miles. Give the shirt off your back. But not just to be innocent as a dove, but also to be as sly as a snake. I ask myself three questions in the face of persecution, troubles, trials, pain, whatever. I think I shared these in other messages. I end most of my messages with these three questions now. As your attacker's in your face, you can do this in your head in seconds, fractions of a second. God, what am I afraid of here? As I'm arguing with my wife and I get insecure, as you pick the scenario, God, what am I afraid of here? Why do I feel this rage? Why do I feel like I want to attack? Why do I want to seek revenge? What am I afraid of here? Because fear is what motivates revenge. Fear does. You're not strong if you're a revengeful person. You're actually weak. Self-control to restrain, that's holy. God made us as people who are dangerous. We can cause great harm, and I would say especially men. We have the ability to be very dangerous warriors. Everybody does. But I'm going to really point out how God designed a man. And you are weak as a man if you respond in your strength and hurt others. That's weakness. That's tyranny. You want to know who a stud of Jesus is? 
the desire to seek revenge, the desire to kill, the desire to punch back. I felt those emotions. Any other people in the room? Absolutely. Self-control. Unto you, O Lord, pick up my cross and follow you. What am I afraid of, Father? What am I trying to do here? I represent you. I want to finish strong for you. What am I afraid of? Second, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Clearly, I have some immaturity here because I'm desiring to act out in a way that's not becoming of you. What are you trying to teach me? What do I need to change? Where do I need to grow? And then the third one, this is a complicated one. What am I afraid of? God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what's, what's love require of me here? God is love. What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus, what do you require of me here? In the face of my attacker and all these emotions I'm experiencing, fear and revenge, what are you teaching me? Now, God, what does love require of me and how I respond? And sometimes, according to Jesus' actions and demonstration, he wasn't always nice. But I promise you, he was always love. Love is 100% justice and mercy. Love in the American church today is all mercy. Believe what you want to believe. I want to respect and really just let you have the feelings that you have. And we kind of are taking truth and we're pushing it out the door. Truth is love is God. And it will kick your butt and mine too. And I think an American culture that is distressed needs some butt kicking. Remember the day when mom and dad, had, I grew up on the farm, take you out behind the barn, make you pick your own switch you're going to get your tail whipped with? Man, that turned me into a good man of God. I hated him for it, but not anymore. What's happened in our culture? We are walking away from the truth of what God desires. And so in my last minute or two, <clears throat> finish strong. You and I are remembered by how we finish. Great leaders in this room, you're leading your CEO of your own company and kicking it in the world, making all kinds of money. You will not be remembered by how you led or how you lead your organization. You will be remembered by how you leave. You will be remembered by how you finish. We're seeing in a culture today, pastors out killing it, millions of followers, right up until their last moment where they have an affair, they punch somebody, they steal money from their own church, and that is how they will be remembered for the rest of their lives and beyond. You and I are remembered by how we finish. So often the danger is as a follower of Jesus, as we're thinking here how to stand strong in a society, turn the other cheek, give of things, and how to carry and serve others, the reality is as you're out in the world and you're thinking about finishing strong, we often get tunnel vision and we're just thinking about heaven. I can't wait to get to heaven. And you'll get so focused on Jesus in heaven that you become churchy and weird. You can't even relate with the very people. God's, God's like, yes, keep your eyes on the finish line. Finish the race. But not at the ignoring of the very purpose I have had you born in this world to seek and save the lost. Don't become so fixated on me that you can't even relate with people who are far from me. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that I might save some. And so you get this tunnel vision 
And I'm saying, and, and, and it's easy for you to think, I'm just going to become very churchy. I'm going to surround myself with only Christians. I'm not going to do evangelism. I'm not going to seek and save the lost. Those people are scary. The wussification of the church, defined. And you, you're so focused on the end that you won't finish strong. Because you got to keep one eye on Jesus and one eye on the hurdle in front of you. I was a hurdler in track. You don't keep an eye on the hurdle. Satan's smart. He's going to leave you with all kinds of strawberries on your body as you glide into that rubber track because you missed the hurdle. Right? Same with you. So finishing strong is not an end result. It is a daily habit. When you're in a discussion with your spouse, how you finish that discussion is how you're remembered. When you are let off, let go from work, how you storm out or not is how you're remembered. Finishing strong for the Lord is not about eternity. It's part. It's about a daily habit of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. After all, he's declared us his masterpiece. Moms, muffins, munchkins, masterpieces. Is that what the Thor are? Wow. Can you finish strong for the Lord? Can you figure out how to conquer evil? Band, come on up. We're going to start communion. Can you figure out how to conquer evil by remaining as innocent as Jesus? I don't know how it affects your relationships, how you take this out of this room and begin to apply it to your life. My challenge is to you, to all of you, if you need to hear this, stop waiting for people to tell you how to behave and start spending time in the Word of God asking the Father, how shall I behave? What are you asking of me in regards to these relationships, these circumstances? Mute out a lot of the noise in the world. Tune in to the Father, to Jesus, and start living, start, deep in, start deeply thinking about what's going on in your life and walk out of here and translate for you. How do I turn the other cheek? How do I give and how do I serve without being taken advantage of evil and at the same time doing good. That ain't no crutch. That is one of the most difficult lives we could possibly live. And so I think it's a very fitting time for us to close our time together uh, with communion. And when you think about what Jesus did and the strength uh, that was required of him to finish strong, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's begging his father three times. Father, is there any other way we can bridge the gap to bring these people back? Father, I know that a blood sacrifice is required. Life's in the blood. Blood has to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. I know we agreed I'm going to lay down my life and my blood is going to pay for their sins. But Father, he asked this three times, is there any other way? Could you take this cup of suffering away from me? Is there any other way? Silence. If you ever feel like God is silent in your life, you're in good company because that's how it was with Jesus too. He went back and asked a second time and a third time. If your child has a very sincere question for you about needing your help to get out of pain and they come and get on their knees before you and beg, Mom, Dad, I need some help here. Is there any other way? Am I really going to have to go through this kind of pain? 
I think most, I'll speak for myself. The world's population is dying. My son gets to live because I'm a softie with my kids. And then Jesus, there's silence. So he gets up and he shakes the dust off his robe and puts his eyes on that cross. And here comes his betrayer. And he starts taking a beating that night in the next 24 hours is a literal hell on earth for him. Brutal for each and every one of us. And he did that because he declares us his masterpiece. So I say all that to hopefully grip your heart a little bit because I know you're like me. You struggle. There's sins that are great temptations for every single one of us. And I pray that after we grasp the price that was paid for us, that that sin just is not quite as tasteful as it used to be. Because my good relationship with the Lord and honoring Jesus who paid such a price, that's where holiness is. That's where love is. That's the good life. That's eternal life. And so Paul actually writes about all this. Paul writes, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God. He broke it into pieces and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. If you're brand new here at North Valley, we've got each stack. There's a stack of two cups together. You just grab the stack, take it back to your seat. In the bottom's the bread that Jesus is referencing. And in the upper cup is the fruit of the vine. This one is grape juice, wine. They used wine in Hebrew culture. It's fruit of the vine, grape juice, absolutely biblical. In the same way, he took the cup of wine, cup of juice after after taking the bread. And this, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement. When you take that, it's an agreement confirmed with my blood, Jesus says. Do this. Remember me as often as you drink it. And then Paul writes on, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again, which means you're also, when you take this, you're saying, is it today, Lord? Is it tonight when you're coming back? Here I am, use me. I'm ready. That's what communion, diving in deep with communion. Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating this bread and drinking this cup. If you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon himself. There's a whole other message in that. Here's the very short version. Do not take that communion if you have unforgiveness in your heart. Can you imagine you're taking this in the sacrificial blood of Jesus in the body so you could be forgiven? And when you take that, you're like, thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. I confess my sins to you. I love to be free in you. But I hate my, I will not forgive. No, I have a hard heart. You are blaspheming the Lord when you do that. You're like, I got mine but I ain't giving others. It would be better for you to sit, spend time in prayer, not take communion, or it'd be better you just get up and walk out of here right now and go do the text, make the phone call, buy the plane ticket, or whatever you need to do to at least do your part to ask for forgiveness or to say you're sorry. You can't control how they respond, but don't take this as some religious duty, tradition, ritual that we do here at North Valley on occasion. There is purpose in the body and blood of Jesus. So let's reverently pray 
And then I'm just going to invite you up. When I'm done praying, music's going to play. Come up and partake of communion. And uh, just keep growing closer to the Lord. Let's keep getting better every single day. Father in heaven, we love you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice. Father, forgive us if necessary, if we've just taken this, this wafer and this juice, this religious tradition. Help us remember this is your body and your blood sacrament of yours to remind us of who you are in our lives. And so I personally, I pray I can speak for us all in this room. Thank you. Thank you that you went to that cross and that you finished well and that you declared in all of our lives, it is finished. And we are now your friends. God, I pray for every single person in this room and every one of us will have submitted to you as Lord and Savior of our lives. Thank you, Jesus. May you be honored in our time of communion and confession and just quiet time individually with you. Thank you that you have the ability to hear each and every one of us and meet each and every one of us right where we're at. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please come up and take communion. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.